Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning verse 11 this morning. We come this morning to a passage that is dealing with the, the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed the enthronement of the great high priest. I've got a dead battery here, so I'm going to have to use this, so bear with me. I'll start, I'll get nervous and move away every now and then, I'm sure, because I'm just not used to standing this still. Um, but we're going to look at the enthronement of the great high priest. Now, if you recall, when we began this study of Hebrews, one of the real unique characteristics of this book that I pointed out at that point was that in, in, in the book of Hebrews, you have Christ presented in all of his offices, in all of his ministries. A lot of times we just think about him as being a great high priest. We just think about his death, his sacrifice, his his atoning work on the cross. But in reality, in the scripture, we have him presented as not only priest, not only great high priest, but also as king and also as prophet. That he is the one who speaks forth the truth of God as a prophet. He is the one who uh, brings about salvation and redemption through his sacrificial death. But he's also the one who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, enthroned, if you will, for all of eternity. So he is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. And this is what this passage today is really beginning to deal with and also to show us how that kingly ministry along with that priestly ministry gives us a full understanding of what salvation is really all about. Hear the reading of the word as I read starting in verse 11 of chapter 10. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's an important statement there. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's what was in Psalm 110 that, that Ricky read just a few minutes ago. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their minds I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of, those th of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. May God use his word because this is the word of the Lord. When you start looking at this passage, and, and this is, is somewhat of a summary passage in some ways of things that we've already talked about, because, for instance, he, he picks up again on Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant, quotes from Jeremiah 31. He quotes again from Psalm 110, which are two of his favorite passages of Old Testament scripture to apply and to bring about our, in our understanding of who Christ is and what Christ's ministry is. And he begins by talking about the old, system that the priest carried out offering his sacrifices understand when he says every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices it was a law it was a, a Levitical law that when a priest would go into the holy place 
when the priest would enter into the ta- uh, to the to that part of the tabernacle where they lit the menorah, where they lit the lights, uh, the the candle stick of lights where they prepared the showbread where they where they had the the cleansing of, of various places and the sacrifices of some things they would they would come to that point and they were never allowed to sit down as long as they ministered there as long as they were inside the tabernacle or inside the temple in the holy of holy place not the holy of holies only the high priest was there but in the holy place a priest ministry was always carried out standing it was just the law And so day after day, every day of the year, continuously, there was a priest in there standing and carrying out his work. And the writer of Hebrews makes good uh, good mention of that in order to contrast, once again, because there's a lot of contrast in this book, contrast the new from the old. The Old Testament priests always stood. They always made these sacrifices. And then he makes that sort of editorial comment there, which can never take away sins. The law said they had to do it. The law said it was a continuous thing. The law said it was done 365 days a year. There was always that ministering going on and always that standing by the priests who were ministering, but they never could take away sins. The sacrifice was temporal. The sacrifice was ineffective as far as really genuinely taking away sins. We've talked about that. The people had to come back day after day, year after year. There always had to be a recurring sacrifice in order for their sins to be dealt with on a very temporal, very short-term basis. Because those sacrifices, while they symbolized and while they pointed, while they served as a shadow of that which was yet to come, never could take away sins. They were ineffectual. They couldn't do it because they were never meant to. They were always meant, as we've said before, to point to that great sacrifice that was yet to come. And the one that he is dwelling on here, the one that he is reveling in here, the one that he's talking about how this high priest has now been enthroned as a great high priest and a king to live forever. When a a priest sat down, it was after he had left the tabernacle, after he had left the holy place, after he had left doing his work and now he rested because at that point that work was finished for him that day and another priest took it up the work was never finished but when he sat down his work was over when when the writer here talks about Jesus now having entered into that place but having offered one sacrifice verse 12 for sins for all time what does it say Jesus did he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down on the throne. He sat down at a place of authority. He sat down in order to declare that my work is finished. My work is complete. His sitting down was an exact same statement as his verbal statement from the cross was when he said those three little words, it is finished. When he said those words, when he ascended into heaven 40 days later, when he seated, was seated at the right hand of the Father, that was the same statement he was making from the cross. He was saying the sacrifice that does take away sin, the sacrifice that does effectually deal with sin, has been accomplished, has been done, and now I am seated. But he's not just seated. He's seated at the right hand of God. 
He's seated at the right hand of the Father. In one, in one sense, there's a, there's a picture here showing the essence of his ascension. And the essence, as we talked about in the, in the Apostles' Creed on Sunday evenings, talking about the significance of his ascension into heaven after his resurrection. And, and the significance there is, is you go from the shame, if you will, of the cross, where he hung there shamefully as a thief or as a criminal, as a common person. There was a shame that the very Son of God, God incarnate, would hang there on a cross in that way. There was shame in that, and the scripture talks about the shame of it. But this exaltation, this seat at the right hand of the Father, moves from the shame of the cross to the point where he has now been exalted to the place of highest glory. He has been shown now through this act, through this ascension, through this exaltation, he has been shown to be the glorious, all-powerful, almighty Son of God. He is exalted above all. And then verse 13 talks about the time of, of end times, if you will. He continues talking about the substance of Psalm 110 when he says in verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. There, there may be an implied warning here to the readers to be sure that as you hear this, and as you hear this sermon, hear this message, be sure that you're not one of his enemies. Be sure that you're not an enemy and numbered among the enemies of the exalted Christ, but rather that you are reckoned to be his friends and companions by your perseverance, by your belief, by your faith in this exalted Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day, the writer says, using Psalm 110, when all his enemies, all those who stand against the cross, all those who, who persecute the church, all those who ridicule people for their faith, there's coming a day when they will literally be made a footstool to him where he will rest forever in the joyous glory of his victory. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. And the writer here brings that into the text again to declare that his ascension and his enthronement and his glorification is just an indication of what is yet to come when the days are over, when he comes again. There's a, there is an implied statement here of his second coming. There's, a, there's an implied statement that he's not going to leave the world as it is and he's not going to leave his disciples in the situation that they're in right now. These believers were being persecuted for their faith. There's the implied statement here that I am coming again and I will restore all things to their rightful order and I will reign as king supreme not only from the heavenly places but also on the face of this earth. I am king and I am glorified and I am in the presence of of God my Father. He, he goes on to talk more about the new covenant then. He, he goes to verse 15 and he says there, you know, the, uh, that this is the covenant. And he says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. I find that an interesting statement. Again, we talked about from the very beginning of this book how the writer doesn't say Jeremiah said or David said in Psalms. But when he pulls these passages in from the Old Testament, he shows his understanding of the authority of Scripture by saying, and the Lord says, or the Holy Spirit says. 
uh, or God has spoken. I mean, all of these references and quotations from the Old Testament clearly declare the authority of the Old Testament as his Bible, as what he sees as God's spoken word. And, he, and here he says in verse, uh, verse 15, and, and the Holy Spirit also testifies. I, I had someone tell me a few weeks ago, uh, you know, the problem with you Baptists is you don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. Problem you Baptists is you don't exalt the Holy Spirit enough. That was the word he used. That, that if you really were following the scripture, you would exalt the Holy Spirit a whole lot more in, in this day and time. And I found that an interesting statement in light of what the scripture says about the Holy Spirit. One of the things, I love what J.I. Packer calls the, uh, the Holy Spirit the shy third person of the Trinity. That, that he, is, he is the shy one. He's not the one that puts himself forward. You know what shyness is. You don't, if you're shy, you don't exalt yourself. You don't push yourself forward. You kind of hold back and, and let other people receive the praise and, and the honor and the glory or whatever. And, and Packer calls the Holy Spirit the, the shy person of the Trinity. And that's not a bad statement because the scripture is always clear that the Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus said this in John's gospel, when I send the Holy Spirit, he will come and he will open your eyes to things, he will show you things, but what he presently does and what he, what he most purposely does is he exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it's sort of this way. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me. Come to me. Get to know me. The Holy Spirit's message is never that. The Holy Spirit's message in Scripture is always, look at him. See his glory. Listen to him. Hear his word. Go to him and have life in him. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and of peace. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to be something of a, of a floodlight, if you will, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. To a floodlight that will show forth who Christ is above everything else. Do you have floodlights around your house? Some of you do. I've seen them at your homes. Or maybe you've gone in Europe to some of the great cathedrals and, and you've seen the floodlights that are cast upon those buildings, huge, very high wattage floodlights who just flood the buildings of those cathedrals or other things. If you go to D.C., you go to the Washington Monument, that tall monument that stands up pointing straight up, just as tall as can be, all around the base of it there are floodlights that just at night flood that, or the Lincoln Memorial, or the Jefferson Memorial, you can go on and on. Floodlights are very important. But I'll never forget my first time in going to Washington, D.C. And, and walking at night and seeing those monuments. I never walked around and said, wow, look at those floodlights. Those floodlights are the most fascinating, beautiful lights I've ever seen. Man, let's just stand here and look at the floodlights for a while. You don't do that. You say, wow, what a monument lit up at night. There, there, there must be floodlights around here somewhere. 
and, and they're doing their job, but their job is not to draw attention to themselves. Their job is not to find praise for themselves. A floodlight, if it's doing its job, will simply sort of be in the background and will exalt or will glorify or will show forth that which it's pointing toward. And that's kind of the hidden ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is not to say, look at me. But the Holy Spirit's job is to point to Christ and say, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, find life in him, get to know him, and taste his gift of joy and peace. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the writer here is saying is happening. He said, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. That is his job, to testify, to, to, to speak forth truth. But it's truth about this new covenant that is in the death and burial and resurrection and ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's not in him. It's not for him. It's not even by him in a strict sense of the word but it's that you might see Christ and see what he's accomplished and in this covenant that we've already talked about he says the, the Holy Spirit is the power that testifies to this covenant and God writes his laws upon our hearts and, and places them upon our minds he writes them there so that we know the truth of God, we abide by the truth of God because of that internal ministry of the Holy Spirit that gives us the strength and the power to be obedient And the Holy Spirit says, and then he says again, and their sins and their lawless deeds will be remembered no more. Look back up in verse 13. I want to tie that in with these last few verses here because it's very important. Verse 13 says that he is seated at the right hand of God. Excuse me, not 13, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we, we've discussed what sanctification means. It means that progression of, of growing in Christ. It means that we have been set apart for the glory of God. We have been set apart for the honor of Christ, that, that God has taken us by, by his will and by his purpose and has made us a part of his family. He has adopted us into his family, and now he is making us to understand the joys and the benefits and the glories of being a part of that family. And, and he's simply saying here that by one offering, that is his offering on the cross, he, he's again making that contrast that by his own self-sacrifice, he has accomplished once for all generations what the Levitical system of sacrifices could never accomplish, could never do. That after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, those sacrifices were no nearer to the attainment of their desired goal, of, of their aim of doing away with sin, than they had been from the beginning. They, they were no nearer to it. They were continuing on. They're always pointing to that one sacrifice that was to come. And verse 14 says, by this one offering, the offering of himself, the sacrificing of his own life by the will of God, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Wow. That sounds pretty uh, significant. He, he down in 
those whole verses that follow, he's talking about that sac uh, sacrifice. He's talking about that perfection. He said in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. What is this perfection that the author talks about? For by one offering, he has perfected, he has perfected for all those, all time, those who are sanctified. Well, if you read it just casually, it sure sounds like that when you are sanctified, you are immediately perfect. So if that is the case, how many of you here are sanctified? Can't raise my hand. But I know that I am sanctified by the, by the blood of Christ and by the sacrifice of Christ. And as the choir sang that, that great anthem this morning, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, it's there that I stand. I stand not in my own righteousness, not in my own perfection, but I stand in the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am perfected by his righteousness. I am perfected by his goodness. And the perfection he's talking about here is a perfection that is a heavenly thing. And that's what it means to be perfected. God has taken care of the sin problem of all men that trust in Christ in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, are, we are cleansed. We are forgiven. Our sins have been dealt with effectually and completely for all time. There, there doesn't be another offering of sin if if there's forgiveness for these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. In other words, you don't make sacrifices anymore. Now, I know that Paul said that our life is to be a living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, we are to commit ourselves to Christ in such a way that our daily living, our daily walk is a sacrifice to him, not a sacrifice to ourselves. But, but it's not a sacrifice for atonement. It's not a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're still living in a, in a world where you think, oh, I've got to tithe in order to be forgiven my sin. I've got to go to church in order to be forgiven my sin. I've got to, do, I, I got to go to Sunday school. I've got to, I've got to do all these things in order for my sin to be forgiven. I want you to know you're living in legalism, not in the grace of God. And, and, and that's troublesome. Because... This sacrifice has perfected, has done it once for all, and there's no longer any offering of sin. Uh, somebody, not somebody, several bodies, uh, asked me about a statement I made last week, and I want to clarify that in light of this. I, I made the statement about a conversation I overheard at a restaurant, and somebody saying that they, they were just, and I didn't communicate it very well, obviously, and as I think about it, I know I didn't. Uh, but, you know, that, that I, I overheard somebody say, well, I just, I just do my best and I try real hard and I'm sure God will understand. And uh, somebody said, well, you know, I, I say that all the time. I'm just doing my best. I'm, I'm reading the word. I'm studying. I'm, I'm, well, that, that's good. You, you ought to be reading the word. You ought to be praying. You ought to be doing all the disciplines of the Christian life. But if you're doing those, expecting that those things will bring salvation to you, you're, dis you're misunderstanding the whole essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that in Christ, those things have been perfected for you. In Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God is not going to love you any less if you don't read your Bible today, if you miss a day of reading your Bible, than he does anyway. And he's not going to love you any more if you read it 15 times. It's a matter of grace. 
It's a matter of his work. It's a matter of him clothing you. So do, do I think you ought to do your best? I absolutely do. As long as you're not saying you're doing your best to try to earn favor with God and earn salvation. And you say, well, that's, that's kind of a... Isn't that, isn't that splitting hairs? No. It, it's getting to the essence of the gospel. And, and sadly, we American Christians as a whole, Baptist Christians particularly, have on many occasions missed that distinction of the gospel. And we've made it very legalistic. And, and we judge somebody whether they're a Christian or not by what they do or they don't do that are external matters rather than what's happening internally in their walk with Christ. And, and there's a danger there because we, if we do that, we distort the gospel. We, we give a, we're, we're, not, we're, we're not letting the Holy Spirit use us as a good uh, floodlight to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I stand here and tell you, listen, just try as hard as you can and, and do your very best and, and God, will, God will look at that and he'll understand you did the best you could. But it was apart from the grace of God. It was apart from the dependency on the, on the final sacrifice, the, the ultimate, the only sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And I have turned out this floodlight and, 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 and I've become a spotlight for error. And that's, that's dangerous. We, we want to be a floodlight for the truth and the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is so clear and so, so succinct that it is only in Christ Jesus that there is life. It's only in his grace. It's only by his sacrifice. And once you've entered into that sacrifice, once you have become a part of that relationship, then, then the writer says here, there, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. There's no longer any offering for sin. That is dealt with. There is forgiveness in those things. And that's all you have to rest in. Now, am I giving you an excuse here not to give and not to be faithful in giving saying oh well God's going to love me just much if I don't give or if I do no because when the Holy Spirit has written his laws in, on your heart and on your, on your mind when the Holy Spirit is the internal motivator for being obedient we desire to please him and honor him and glorify him and be used by him it's not a cop out to say okay I'll just go live any way I want to when the Holy Spirit is really active in your life there's a sanctified life that begins to demonstrate itself not on the externals but on the internals on what is real and, and the whole motivation is changed for how you obey so longer obeying to find favor with God so longer obeying to try to get forgiveness from God but it's obeying out of a gratitude to God. So that's what our worship is supposed to be here. So I'm supposed to be, okay, I come to church so maybe God will like me. But, but you come to church because God does love you, has shown you his grace, and we come to lift our hearts and our voices in praise to him corporately as a body to say, Lord, you and you alone are worthy of our praise and our love and our expression of joy because of what you've already done in our hearts. What you've already done from within.
And so when the writer reiterates the, the new covenant here, he's about to get into verses 19 through, through 39 where he's going to clearly give some more admonitions, some more warnings, some more uh, expressions and some, some admonitions to us as believers of how we, ought to, how we ought to live within this new covenant. But he wants to make clear that if you are in Christ, if you are in him, you have been sanctified and you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have been perfected by his righteousness, not your own righteousness, and, and you've been forgiven of your sins. I, I, their sins and their lawless deeds, I remember against them no more. That's the literal meaning. I remember them against them no more. And there's forgiveness. So there's no longer any offering to be given. That's the glory of the gospel. That really is the glory of the gospel. That we have been forgiven by him because of his work and by his grace. And I think that you could go back to, ver to chapter 1 even of this book as we began it months ago where it says in verse 1, God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I mean, that goes all the way back to when we started this. As the, the writer gave that somewhat of a synopsis of the whole book in those first four books. But the point I think he's trying to say that is that forgiveness negates any need for further sacrifice. And, and this very quotation there in verse 18, that very statement in verse 18 is basically saying this. God has spoken in his son and he has no word beyond him to speak. Now think about that. He is the culmination of the revelation of God. He is the culmination of the, of the salvation that God brings. He has spoken in past in the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and the others. He, he's spoken in various ways, but in these last days in which we are now living, they began with the coming of Christ. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, and through his sacrifice, there's no new revelation to be had. There's nothing any higher or any better or any clearer that he could speak that in the work of his son on the cross, he has been exalted. He has been enthroned. He has been set on high next to the, the majesty on high. He has gone from the shame of the cross to the glory of his ruling. And he now rules for all eternity over his people, over his kingdom, and over his church. Let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful to you that in the sacrifice of Christ, you have taken away and taken care of the sin problem of man for those who have trusted in Christ. We're thankful to you, Lord, that in this sanctification, you have declared us in justification to be not guilty and righteous. You've imputed that to us. And now in sanctification, you're carrying out the slow work of helping us to understand that. But Lord, we'll never know it fully till we stand in your presence. And when we hear you say, as that song said, and Jeff reiterated, child, you are my own, bought by the blood of Christ, adopted into the family of God, purely and sheerly out of grace. Father, that is almost too much to comprehend. But it ought to cause our hearts to literally explode with gratitude and appreciation and an expression of love to you. Father, I pray for men and women who are here that have never come under the new covenant. They might have been religious all their life. They might still be religious, but they've never really known the forgiveness of sins that cleanses once and for all and requires no further sacrifice. Father, I pray this day that your Holy Spirit will be a floodlight to Jesus for them. They will see him as their savior and their need for him and, and Lord, their sin that needs forgiveness. And they will bow low where they are right now sitting at the cross of Christ. Father, we are grateful to you. We wait upon you to do your work in our lives. And Lord, with us who are in the covenant, help us be reminded of the great glory of that and not presume upon it, but trust fully in it. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.